Today on Blue 58, the Packers will play six games against NFC North opponents in 2020, so it makes sense to start our preview of 2020 opponents there. How will the Packers' divisional opponents change this season? Then, when is a gimmick just a gimmick, and when is it an innovation? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Last offseason, one of the most rewarding series for me that we did was a look ahead at all the Packers 2019 opponents. It was good, at least for my internal notes, uh, to refer back to those previews as we went into the games the Packers played against those opponents. It's helpful for a couple of reasons. First, it gives us like a 40,000-foot view of everybody the Packers are going to play. And secondly, it gives us an opportunity to compare what we thought about a team for now in May with whenever the Packers end up playing them. For instance, last year when we were previewing the Chiefs, there were a lot of personnel moves that they made that hadn't happened yet. So... The team that we previewed and the team that the Packers ultimately ended up playing was vastly different. They also had the small wrench in the works of not having a healthy uh, Patrick Mahomes for the Packers to play against, but that's an entirely different ball of wax. The point is, things are going to change between now and then, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth taking a little bit of a look at who the Packers are going to be playing this year right now, whenever it may be that they end up playing against their 2020 opponents. Now, for the NFC North, I want to do things a little bit differently than we're going to do for their other opponents. When we talk about all the 2020 opponents, I'd like to talk about their key offensive and defensive additions, how they'll be different from last year, and what Packers fans should expect when the Packers play against them. For the NFC North, I want to be a little bit more broad because these are what Mike McCarthy would call common opponents. Um, so these are teams that we know pretty well. Most of the personnel moves that the Minnesota Vikings have made in the last couple months, for example, I think are going to be pretty familiar to most of us. And we're pretty familiar with who the Vikings are and what they're about anyway. What I'm interested in is how likely it is that teams are going to change from what they were last year, just based on a couple of numbers. I'm interested in that because the quickest way to the playoffs is to win your division. And I think the quickest way to win your division is for the person or team rather on top of the division to just fall apart completely. The Packers have benefited from that a couple times over the years. It was like a three-year stretch from 2015 through 2017 where the Detroit Lions got out to a great start and then just fell fell apart down the stretch. In 2015 and 16, for sure, the Packers really benefited from the Lions just coming undone down the stretch. And the Packers were right there to step in and say, thank you very much, we will take your playoff spot and, uh, and not look back. And the Lions were left on the outside looking in. That could be the case for the Packers this year. Or... It could be that the Packers just benefit from somebody else falling apart. So how do you tell who is likely to not repeat their performance from last year? Or if somebody was bad last year, how likely is it that they are going to stay that way? I think there are a couple numbers that can help us determine how vulnerable a team might be or 
perhaps how likely it is that they are to play better in 2020 than they did last year just because of some bad breaks. Because bad breaks are a real part of football. And I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that luck plays a little bit of a role in a team's, well, fortunes. It helps to get good breaks. And good breaks are nothing to be ashamed about. So let's look at each of these three teams using two numbers. Those two numbers are adjusted games lost and expected wins. Adjusted games lost is a metric developed by football outsiders that kind of that tries to assess the overall impact of injuries on a team's roster. How available are their players? Here's their definition from their website. Quote, we have collected the data from the NFL's weekly injury reports for every season since 2001. This allows us to measure not just who played and who didn't, but who is able to play with injuries, even if those injuries meant that the player was at something less than 100%. That's why we call this metric adjusted games lost. In addition to players who missed games entirely, we also count those who hit the field after appearing on the injury report at an adjusted rate. Further, we track whether the player was a starter, a situational reserve, or simply bottom of the roster fodder. Obviously, an injury to a starting tackle is more important than one to a guy who only plays on special teams. End quote. I will include a link to this in your show notes. It's worth checking out the entire report and looking back at a, a couple past years, too, because it lets you ballpark the overall impact of injuries on a given team. In the NFL this year, the average team suffered 75.8 adjusted games lost. That's just a number for you to keep in your mind. We're not going to talk so much about how many games a team lost, but where they ranked relative to the rest of the league. The second number I want to talk about is expected wins. Using point differential, you can come up with a pretty good estimation of how many games a team should have won or should have lost. Just for the sake of example, the Packers in 2019 finished with a final record of 13-3, and but because they managed to squeak out so many close games, their expected wins and losses was closer to 9-7. and In fact, it was 9.7 and 6.3, so closer to 10-6. and You would have expected the Packers, given their point differential, to go closer to 10-6 and than to the 13-3 and where they finished up. And the two Lions games are pretty good examples of that. Everyone loves to point out how the Packers actually never led those games at all during any point of the game where there was time left on the clock. They only won on last-second field goals as time expired. Technically, the ball went through the uprights after time expired, so the Packers never led at any point during those games. And because they only ended up winning by a field goal, the point differential was relatively slim. Are either of these numbers perfect? No. But they do seem to have some pretty strong predictive capabilities as far as who's going to be good from one year to the next. Or who, I guess maybe that word I used earlier, vulnerable, who is vulnerable, um, might be a better way of putting it. So let's start with the Vikings. The Vikings were unusually healthy in 2019. They ranked first in the NFL in adjusted games lost. That average number of 75.8, the Vikings had almost 
Well, a little bit less than a third of that, 25.6 adjusted games lost. They were a very, very healthy team last year. And they finished with that very, very healthy team with a record of 10 and 6. Their adjusted games or their expected wins and losses, though, were just 10.7 and 5.3. They actually finished a little bit behind where you would have expected them to be. They actually underachieved a little bit. To me, this would indicate that the Vikings are vulnerable next year. And given some of their roster turnover, I think it seems likely that they're, they are perhaps going to decline a little bit. Chances are they won't be quite as healthy in 2019 as they were in 20, or 2020 as they were in 2019. And that alone could result in a big adjustment uh, to their final win total this year. Or maybe they stay healthy for a second year in a row and uh, Kirk Cousins really puts it together again, and they end up running the NFC North. That could happen, I suppose. Moving on to the Detroit Lions, the Lions finished the season with a record of 3-12-1. The biggest reason for that is they were pretty unhealthy. They ranked 24th in the NFL in adjusted games lost. They were way above average, well, slightly above average, not way above average. The Jets were way above average. They lost about 160 total games, way above league league average of 75 or so. The Lions were at 87.8, so slightly more than average, slightly unhealthier than average. Ranking 24th in the league puts them in the bottom quarter. Their expected wins losses, expected win-loss record was about 6 and 10, so they also underachieved a little bit. And when you lose two games on the last play of the game, you are going to look a little bit like an underachiever. However, this means that heading into 2020, there's a pretty good chance they are going to be better than their 3-12-1 record. And among the NFC North, they're probably the most likely team to bounce back. How high will they bounce? Well, that's anybody's guess. But chances are they're not going to be 3-12 and 12 again. And when you start looking at numbers like that, it makes sense why the Lions would want to bring back Matt Patricia and their entire front office staff. Sure, it hasn't gone super well so far, but if you're underachieving because of injuries, you get a little bit more slack in the rope. So he gets at least one more shot, and chances are he's probably going to be a little bit better. Finally, you've got the the... Chicago Bears. For some reason, my brain really wanted to say the Dallas Cowboys. Nope, they are not in the NFC North, I am sorry to say, because watching Mike McCarthy square off against Matt LaFleur would make for some pretty interesting television. The Bears were almost exactly as healthy as the Packers in 2019. So again, that average figure, 75.8, both the Bears and the Packers were slightly healthier than that. The Bears lost 65.4 games. The Packers lost 65.6. Good for 13th and 14th in the league, respectively. The Bears also played pretty close to their record. In fact, they overachieved a little bit. Their final record was 8-8. They finished third in the NFC North. Due to their point differential, their expected win-loss total was 7.4 and 8.6. Given that they were right near the middle of the league, given that they were or in terms of their health, given that they really didn't overachieve that much, I think there's a pretty good chance that the Bears are pretty close to 8-8 again this year. 
In fact, I think there's a pretty good chance that most of the NFC North is somewhere between 7 and 9 and 10 and 6. Just looking at some of the data here, without getting too deep into personnel, I'd say there's a pretty good chance this division is going to be a rock fight again. This is going to be a nasty, maybe not all that exciting division, a lot of close games, a lot of maybe ugly football, but I expect most of the teams in this division to be right there competing for a playoff spot right to the very end. And that makes for some pretty exciting or at least interesting stuff. Sure, it may not be pretty, but at least it'll be interesting. Maybe not pretty, but interesting is a good segue into our book discussion for this episode. We are in chapter seven of Take Your Eye Off the Ball, the explanatory book by Pat Kerwin, who's helping us become smarter Packers fans and just smarter football fans in in general by talking through some of the big themes uh, that help you watch football better. This chapter is all about evolution on offense and I guess on defense too, but the chess match between coaches making adjustments and other coaches responding to those adjustments. To me, this is the most interesting story in football history, how offensive trends and defensive trends adjust and then readjust and then adjust within context of rule changes and personnel changes and players getting bigger and stronger and faster. The big question I have stems from something Kerwin says near the beginning of this chapter. And I'll just read a, 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 a couple paragraphs here to, to get into it. He's talking about the wildcat. And he starts the discussion by talking about how the Miami Dolphins rolled out the wildcat and used it to upset the New England Patriots, who were then on a 21-game winning streak, at the time the longest in NFL history. So he begins, page 115, first impressions, quoting now from the book, don't come any bigger in the NFL. No one noticed when the Carolina Panthers ran 12 plays out of a wildcat formation on Christmas Eve two seasons earlier. But when Miami and offensive coordinator Dan Henning, who had been the Panthers' offensive coordinator that night in 2006, unveiled it against Bill Belichick, everyone in the NFL paid attention. Within a year, 22 teams had experimented with some sort of wildcat formation. It was never a gimmick, though I heard a lot of analysts refer to it that way, and it was not a trick play. The Wildcat was a legitimate package from the start because of the matchup problems it created for the defense, end quote. We're going to stop there for a second because this is the the hook I want to hang this discussion on. He says the Wildcat was not a gimmick. It was a legitimate offensive package. But if it wasn't a gimmick... Why didn't it have more staying power? And if you're going to talk about the Wildcat in a package or in a chapter about offensive innovation, we've got to figure out what an innovation actually is. So what's the difference in the NFL, in football in general, between a gimmick and an innovation? Well, I think Mr. Kerwin actually gives us a pretty good definition here in the next couple paragraphs. So I'll read them here for a second, and then we'll circle back to this. Quoting again from the book, quote, when I wrote about the Wildcat in 2010, I said that it could have a place in an NFL offense if it continued to evolve. Specifically, if teams 
passed consistently from that formation, which would have involved some to, someone other than the starting quarterback actually throwing the pass, the lifespan of the Wildcat could be an extended one. It was never going to become any team's base offense, and while there were arguments to be made for its usefulness in providing short-term protection for inexperienced or ineffective quarterbacks, it was never going to be more than a counterpunch, never a team's go-to knockout punch. Ultimately, the Wildcat died the death that awaits all creatures who fail to adapt. Defensive coaches did what Bill Cowher predicted would happen. They blitzed the mesh point where the two backs came together for either the handoff or the fake handoff. They no longer felt compelled to cover the quarterback, split out as a wide receiver, because teams didn't demonstrate a willingness to throw the ball to him. It was too great a risk to that guy who ran the other 99% of your offense, end quote. So in short, the Wildcat eventually died out in the NFL, or reduced to the point that it is, at this point, exclusively a gimmick, because teams couldn't adapt with it. But to me, that sounds exactly like what a gimmick is. You're just using it to try to catch other teams off guard, hoping that they're not prepared for it, and then as soon as they catch on even a little bit, you move on. I think, though, if you look back at the course of NFL history, you can see that there are a lot of things that started out maybe looking like gimmicks that developed into actual offensive trends. Or, because they worked as gimmicks, coaches figured out how to create them or create real innovations around them. Look at things like zone blocking, what we talked about in the last episode. Early on, I bet there were a lot of people who thought that looked an awful lot like a gimmick. But it kept working. And it worked in such a way that it could be adapted and grown to the point that you've got, right off the top of your head, three NFL coaches whose entire offense runs around that zone blocking scheme. You've got Matt LaFleur in Green Bay. You've got Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco. You've got Sean McVay in Los Angeles. If you want to expand it out further, Minnesota Vikings run basically the same scheme thanks to Gary Kubiak. It gets bigger and bigger. The entire West Coast offense started as something of a gimmick. You've got Bill Walsh experimenting with short passes, a more timing-based offense. Heck, Bill Walsh, to use a different example, that Kerwin cites in that story, experimented with the zone read, option plays. Why? Why did he do it? Because he wasn't sure he could block Lawrence Taylor in the playoffs. So what do you do? You come up with a scheme where a guy essentially ends up blocking himself. If a gimmick ends up having staying power, it turns into a real innovation. But if you stop using it, it is just a gimmick. But following the course of those innovations is an important part, I think, of becoming a smarter Packers fan. So here's three books that will help you do that. The first one is a book that I've cited many times. Here, I'll give you four, actually. The first one is one I've cited many times, America's Game by Michael McCambridge. If you're going to read one book about NFL history, read that one. It will take you all the way from the 1920s till the early 2000s. It'll give you a broad overview of how the league grew and changed and what trends were important and how rule changes uh, played a big part in the development of the league. It's worth checking out, and it'll give you a good foundational overview of how trends 
develop in the NFL. The next book I would recommend to you is The Perfect Pass by S.C. Gwynn. This is one that I talked about as being one of the best football books that I read in 2019. I still think so. Uh, but it shows you how what looks like a gimmick can develop into a real offensive trend. Hal Mummy and Mike Leach working and perfecting the air raid offense, ultimately changing college football and now really beginning to change NFL football. But early on, they were viewed as outsiders because nobody wanted to play football that way. They thought it was unmanly or, I don't know, some other troglodyte take that makes you look like you just don't want to change for the sake of not changing. So there's a second one, and I will try to link to all of these in, in the show notes as well. The third book that I would recommend to you about the, the changing trends in the NFL or, or how trends change in the NFL and how gimmicks develop into real substantive innovations is The Last Headbangers by Kevin Cook. This details the change in the NFL that happened from the mid to late 70s through the early 80s. Rule changes during that time, the last gasp of the AFL as it merged into the NFL, changed the NFL from a running league to a passing league. And this is not so much about schematic innovations as adapting to changing circumstances in the NFL. The NFL wanted to emphasize certain things, so they changed the rules and teams had to adapt and innovate accordingly. And this is similar to what we've seen, I think, in the 21st century. There have been several notable rule changes that have made it easier and easier for NFL offenses to pass. And NFL passing efficiency has exploded as a result. This is the very first version of that. So check that book out. Plus, it's just great to remember, or if you weren't alive during that time, read about for the first time a really brutal era in NFL football and what it was like to be an NFL player during that time. Finally, and we'll bring this discussion full circle here, by talking about Blood, Sweat, and Chalk by Tim Layden. Layden charts several key plays, key schemes, key strategies that affected uh, NFL development over the life of the NFL, including... The Wildcat. And I'll read you a little bit about what he says about the Wildcat and about how the Wildcat, in his mind, actually could be indicative of, if not an innovation, certainly a trend. Quoting now from the book. NFL coaches, coaches at any level, in fact, are fond of the expression, it's a copycat league. It is their default response to explaining any trend. And it's generally true. Within hours of the Dolphins' victory over the Patriots, at least half a dozen teams were exploring the use of some sort of wildcat package in their offense. And the concept was not entirely new to the league. Other NFL teams had dabbled with it in recent years, which made the Dolphins all in more of a culmination than of a founding. NFL teams had been selectively direct snapping to an alternate back for the better part of a decade. Ladanian Tomlinson, a future Hall of Fame running back, had taken direct snaps and thrown touchdown passes for the Chargers. The Patriots had used running back Kevin Falk in the shotgun. Belichick recalled that Pittsburgh quarterback Ben Roethlisberger ran off tackle from a shotgun formation in his rookie season in 2004. Hines Ward, a former high school quarterback, had also taken snaps for the Steelers. 
but it was the Dolphins who took the last step and truly committed to the system, using the Wildcat almost on one out of 10 snaps in 2008 and scoring 20% of their touchdowns with it, and many teams immediately followed. End quote. He also talks later on in this same chapter about how this trend or this system could go from gimmick to trend. Quote, if the name and nature of the Wildcat is in dispute, its place in football is not. Quoting now from a different personality, the single wing type stuff is going to become more the norm in the future, says veteran NFL coach and offensive coordinator Chan Gailey. Over the next 10 to 15 years, it's going to evolve because the runner-thrower is the kind of quarterback that the college game is producing now. You don't find a ton of six foot three, six four drop-back, stand-up passers. They're not in college, so we're not getting them up here. When Cameron was the head coach of the Dolphins in 2006, he noticed a sea change in the quarterback position at all levels of the sport. I saw little kids playing Pop Warner, seven, eight, nine years old, doing the belly read option from the shotgun, says Cameron. I was absolutely floored by the stuff they were doing so young. So the Wildcat may not have stuck around, but there's a chance that the kind of thinking that produced the Wildcat could end up being some sort of long-term trend. And I think if you just look at some of the quarterbacks in the NFL, some of the young quarterbacks in the NFL right now, there's reason to think that at least coaches may be a little bit more open-minded. Look at Kyler Murray and look at Lamar Jackson. Neither of them are the classic drop back and sling it type quarterbacks. Sure, Kyler Murray plays in the air raid, but he has a lot of running to his game too. And Lamar Jackson is leading an offensive revolution in Baltimore based in almost entirely on the ground. And a lot of it has to do with what he can do as a runner. The NFL is more willing now than I think ever to try things and see if they work. Maybe that means the next gimmick, like the Wildcat, might have a little bit more staying power. I'm interested to see, and I hope you are too. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Appreciate you tuning in. If you like this episode and you know somebody else who might, go ahead and share it with them. I would appreciate if you do that, and that's going to help us continue to uh, expand the conversation around football in general and about the Packers. And doing that is going to help us all continue to become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.